Father God, speak to us now from your word and through your spirit. Use even me, I pray. Amen. I'm going to start this morning with a confession. I love ice cream. I love ice cream. Not much of a confession, perhaps. Certainly no surprise to those who know me best. It's no surprise to my parents, because it all started with them. See, when we were growing up, we had a bit of a tradition in our household that after every evening meal, we'd have dessert. And that dessert would consist of generally three things. We'd have jelly, tin fruit, and vanilla ice cream. Now, jelly, I don't like jelly. And tin fruit, well, I can take it or leave it. But I love ice cream. So by the time I was a teenager, I used to help myself to ice cream before the evening meal. I loved it that much. I'd sneak in, take some from the ice cream tin, and mum would often regard it at dinner time. Wow, how light the punt had become from what she remembered because I'd been having a go at it. So by the time I actually started working, if we were ever to be at home and watching a video, I wouldn't reach for a bag of chips or popcorn. I'd go up to the 7-Eleven and get myself a litre tub of Sara Lee strawberry ice cream and I'd sit there with a spoon and finish the whole lot in one sitting. So by the time then we got married, I'd moved on to bigger and better things. Uh, this time we had uh, Cadbury uh, ice cream. It was vanilla with cho- chocolate chip was my particular poison uh, back then. And that used to come in a two-litre tub. And there's been at least one occasion, probably more, where I've sat there with the entire two litres and eaten the whole thing in one sitting. Now that I'm, the children have come along, it's slightly different. I haven't carried along my parents' tradition of having dessert every night. We do have ice cream occasionally, so I usually eat it when they're in bed, so I've got it to myself. Um, and yes, I won't eat two litres in one hit, but it'll only take a few days and then it's gone. Okay, so why am I telling you this? It doesn't really matter. And this is a fairly minor thing, yeah, eating, eating a bit too much ice cream. Is it really important? Well, the question there is, if that's not important, then what is? So what I'm going to do this morning is we're going to do a little exercise. We're going to try and discover where it is that we've crossed a line from something which really doesn't matter too much, it's not that important, to something where we go, oh, hang on a moment, we shouldn't be doing that. And I'm going to do that by using a, a simple word substitution. So instead of ice cream, I'm going to change the term ice cream and use speeding. So if I said to you this morning, I love speeding, what would you think? Of course, you know, I don't speed all the time. I only speed when I'm late or only try and keep up with the traffic. I'm not going 20, 30 kilometers over the speed limit. And you know, if someone's slow and can't keep up with the speed limit, I'll go around them. It's better to have them behind me than in front of me. But has that gone too far? Or are we not there yet? Let's try another word. How about gambling? So let's say before the game of footy on the television, I'd have a little flutter. Always gamble responsibly, uh, responsibly, as they say in the ads. Gamble responsibly. It's just to make the game a little bit more exciting. But has that gone too far? Or we're not there yet? Well, let's keep going. How about drinking alcohol? And not specifically drinking alcohol itself, but too much. You now, if there's a nice bottle of wine there and no one else is drinking it, it's a shame to put that bottle to waste. Have we gone too far then? We can move on to smoking. Is smoking too far? Or maybe we move on even further to more illicit or illegal drugs. 
You know, marijuana, LSD. Is that a problem? How about you move off that and move on to sex? Watching pornography. Is that a big deal? Or how about violence? Or how about we put those last two together and come up with rape? Or we just take violence to its ultimate and say murder. Now somewhere in that list, if you didn't think it was a big deal to start with, I think I can guarantee you by the time we got to the end, it was a big deal. But where do we draw the line? Where do we say, no, we shouldn't be doing this? And yeah, that's okay. Well, what does the Bible say about these things? And we're going to look today at Romans 8 and one particular verse which tells us how we ought to deal with these things. But before we do, we need a small amount of background. Now, if you were listening to the Bible readings this morning, you would have heard one word repeated more often than not, and that word is sin. S-I-N, three-letter word, sin. Now, what does that mean? Well, according to the Oxford Dictionary, the definition of sin is an immoral act considered to be a transgression against divine law, which sounds great. I think the easier way to say it is doing what God says you shouldn't do. That's sin. Now, what matters in our little exercise here is what is regarded as sin and what isn't, as far as the Bible is concerned. But what does the Bible say to us in regards to how we ought to deal with this sin? Open your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 8. It's on page 1118 in your Black Church Bibles. And Paul says, we have an obligation. Let's read from verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But... If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And we're going to be concentrating on this obligation that we have, and in particular on verse 13, the second half, where Paul says, But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. But who is this obligation for? It is to somebody, he does say, if by the Spirit you put to death. Who is this you he's referring to? Well, for that we go back into its immediate context in verse 12, where Paul says, therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. So the you he's referring to here is brothers. But what does that mean? Is that family? Is that friends? Often you'll greet a friend and say, hey, brother, how are you going? Who's he referring to here when he says brothers? Well, for that, we need a, a wider context. If we go back to Romans 8, verse 1, we read this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the brothers he's referring to are those who are in Christ Jesus. They're the ones who have this obligation. But what does that mean, to be in Christ Jesus? Well, for that, we're going to have to look at another verse. In fact, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, a well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16. If you're going to turn there, please keep your thumb in Romans 8. We will probably go back and forth a bit today through the Bible, but we'll always end up back in Romans 8. So keep a thumb there. 
If you want to follow along, John 3.16 you can find on page 1052 of your Black Church Bibles. Well-known verse, you should know this pretty well. Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So this is what it means to be in Christ Jesus, to believe in him. To believe what exactly? Well, to believe that he is God's one and only Son, to believe that he was given by God, to believe that he perished so that we shall not. He did this by dying for us upon the cross and taking the penalty that we deserve for the sins that we've committed. And to believe that we have eternal life because Jesus did not stay dead. He rose from the dead and he lives at the right hand of the Father. So this is what it means to believe in him, to be in Christ Jesus. But maybe you don't need that. Maybe you've never done anything bad enough. You haven't crossed that line that Jesus should have to die for you. Maybe you're right as you are. And it's very easy for us to look at each other and say, yes, well, if I compare myself to somebody else, I'm all right, and they're all right, so what's the big deal? It's very easy to justify the things that we do wrong and to underestimate the harm that it can do. Actually, I did it this morning. Did you notice that in our little exercise? When I said I loved ice cream, what was the first thing that I did? I blamed my parents. It started with them. Then I used terms like in the past, occasionally, sometimes. When I talked about speeding, I said I only speed when I'm late. When I talked about drinking, it was a shame to, to waste a bottle. When I talked about gambling, it was just uh, responsible. I was gambling responsibly. It was just a, a bit of fun. It's easy to justify the things that we do. In fact, it's even easy to justify the worst things that we see. If you were watching the news during this week, you would have heard of the tragedy of the family of four uh, on the northern beaches who were found dead in their homes. And when the police broke into the house and found them there, there was no signs of forced entry. There was no visible struggle or signs of a struggle. And there were no wounds on the actual bodies themselves. And upon further investigation, they found an elaborate system of pipes set up through the roof in the ceiling in which to deliver a deadly gas in what now appears to be a murder-suicide in that particular family. How do you justify that? Well, when you consider the family itself, the two children had severe mental disabilities and knowing something of the stress that can put on, on the family and on the relationships and the lowered expectations you could have for their future, I mean, you consider the quality of life argument that we hear often from those who support euthanasia. And perhaps it's not so difficult to justify after all. So the point here is that we have all sinned. We have all done what we should not do. And we need Jesus to pay the penalty for us. And you don't have to take my word for it. Because Jesus doesn't stop speaking at John 3.16. He continues. If you look again, John 3 and verse 17, Jesus says, 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? Why do they stand condemned? Because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. If you are not in Christ Jesus this morning, then this is your obligation, your instruction, your challenge from the Bible today to believe in the one that God sent, that he perished to pay the penalty for your sin. Hear the warning here that Jesus gives in verse 18. We stand condemned already if we do not believe. If you are not in Christ Jesus today, come in faith, come in repentance, and receive from him the promised eternal life. For those of you who are in Christ Jesus, however, Paul tells us we have an obligation. And what is that obligation? Let's turn back to Romans 8 and verse 13, the second part of that particular verse, where Paul says, But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this is our obligation, to put to death the misdeeds of the body. But what does that mean? Misdeeds of the body. What's that referring to? Well, we've seen some of that already in the exercise we did at the beginning of the sermon. Uh, it's the outworking of sin within us that we need to put to death. And while our list was fairly small in the exercise that we did, uh, the, the list of sins is quite large. And some of these words you'll, you'll know, greed, lust, selfishness, pride, hate, stealing, wrath, the list goes on, idolatry, covetousness, envy, jealousy, sexual immorality. These are the kind of things we are told that we need to put to death. And what do you think of when you hear put to death? There is a, a single-mindedness involved here, a, a remorselessness, a ruthlessness even, in order to put something to death. And I was trying to think of an example of ruthlessness in common society today. And the best example I could think of was UFC. Have you ever heard of UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championship? It's where two people enter into a ring, well, it's actually more like a cage, and they engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat until one is declared the victor. It's quite a brutal thing, too, UFC. It seems just about anything goes. Uh, I can't say I'm a big fan of it. It's a bit too explicit for me. I think I prefer professional wrestling, where the, the violence is more simulated than, than real. But... An example of ruthlessness and single-mindedness I find best from UFC. It's probably best shown when one of the two fighters knocks the other to the canvas. Now, in boxing or other sports, when that happens, you back off and give the other person a chance. But not in UFC. Once you've knocked the person to the, to the ground, you press home the advantage. They will literally jump on the person, pin them to the ground, and flower wildly around their head with elbows and fists in order to end the fight quickly. And the only thing that stops the fight is when the referee physically intervenes in order to protect the person that's on the canvas, and that's called the end of the fight. If he wasn't there, they might well cause some serious harm, if not kill them itself. It's that kind of ruthlessness here that we need to do 
when we're told to put something to death. It's not a matter of, haha, I've done it, I can walk away. It's pressing home the advantage. When you've got the advantage, you keep on top of it. But why? Why does Paul say we must put to death the misdeeds of the body? I mean, some of the things we went through in our exercise weren't such a big deal, were they? Well, the reason why it does this is because sin is insidious. What that means is sin is subtle, it is crafty, it is clever. It will start small, but it will end up doing great harm and it will seek to do the most it can get away with. If you turn with me back to our first reading this morning, Genesis 4, we read about Cain and Abel, and we'll see that sin has been insidious from the very beginning. Now, I apologise in advance. I know we had this reading last week also. Uh, it wasn't planned that we have it two weeks in a row. Uh, it just seemed to work out that way. But at least you're familiar with the story. Uh, but what I want to focus on here, if you turn to Genesis 4, which is on page 4 in your Black Church Bibles, is what God says to Cain. So you know the story. Cain and Abel both did offerings before the Lord. Abel's was looked upon favorably, and Cain's was not. And so Cain becomes angry. And then God confronts him about this. If you read from verse 6, it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Cain did not master it. Cain let his anger fester. And as a result, we read, he takes his brother out into the field and he murders him. And Cain had no right to be angry in the first place. No right at all. God says to him, just do what is right and you'll be accepted. But Cain did not listen. And something as small as being angry over over something he could fix, ended up being murder. This is sin. Sin will start small. It's subtle. We don't even realize we're doing it some of the time. But it will always seek to bring about the worst in us. So we must put it to death. But how? How do we put it to death? What do we do? Well, turning back to Romans 8.13, Paul tells us how we ought to do it. He says in verse 13, But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit is the key here. Why by the Spirit? Because the Spirit contends for us against sin. In order to explain this, we're going to go back one chapter in Romans. Romans chapter 7. And we're going to read from verse 21. It's on the same page as Romans chapter 8, if you can find it there. Romans chapter 7 and verse 21. But Paul says this, talking about himself. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But... I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law at sin at work within my members. 
Can you see that the, the sinful nature within us, what Paul calls um, the, the members of his body, is waging war against the spirit. Now, if there was no spirit, there's nothing to wage war against. And the spirit does not simply defend. It wages war back. It contends for us against sin. How does it do this? Well, it exposes sin to us. So I mentioned earlier at times we do things and don't even realize that we might have done it. But it's the spirit that exposes the sin to us and lets us know that it's wrong. It convicts us of the sin that we do in order that we stop doing it. And it never leaves us comfortable in sin. It never leaves us going, hey, you've done that and that's all right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't do that. It says, no, you can't do this. This is not right. It convicts us of the guilt in order that we might deal with it. But you will notice here that Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death. So it's not a matter of us just saying, hey, the Spirit will take care of it. I've got nothing to do. It's okay. God will work in my life and there'll be no sin. No, it's our obligation to do this. So how then, practically, do we do it? How do we work against sin and put it to death? Well, the first thing is, sin doesn't actually die. Our sinful nature, as Paul says, it remains. While we draw breath in this life, we will still sin. And our sinful nature is there. So in order to put it to death, it's not a once-off thing. Hey, I've put it to death, I'm finished, I can walk away, we're done. No, no, no. It's a constant thing. A daily practice for us to put to death the sin that's in our lives, in order to weaken it, in order to press home the advantage we have, like that UFC fighter, right? Once it's down, keep it down. Don't walk away and give them a chance to recover. Keep it down and continually work. The other thing is, don't just focus on one particular sin. Now, if you're anything like me, there's particular sins that you will struggle with. I know there's sins I've been struggling with since I first became a Christian I still struggle with now. That's 30-odd years ago. But I'm not to put all my energy into just that one thing because it leaves other sin untouched. And sin left untouched desires the worst in us and will produce the worst it can. So we must work on all sin from smallest to largest. I'm not sure where you were in our exercise this morning or where you thought it didn't matter and where the line was crossed. All of that needs to be worked on from the smallest thing to the greatest. How do we do that then? Well, this is warfare. Now, I don't know how many times you've heard of a military battle that's worked out brilliantly by one party just going, eh, we'll just throw ourselves straight into the opposition and see if we overpower them. That usually ends in horrible defeat. When war's there, you do everything you can to guarantee that you're going to win. So you study your enemy, you learn their weaknesses, you learn their strengths. You pick your time and your place when you're going to battle them. If you're going to go to battle, you want the high ground. You want the wind and the sun at your back. You don't just rush headlong into battle and go, well, I hope it's going to work. We need to do the same thing when we're dealing with our sin. So it starts small, it gets bigger. So let's consider where it starts. So, if you've been convicted of a particular sin... Where were you when it happened? Were you at home? Or were you at work? Maybe you were travelling to work or from work. 
Or maybe you were out and about, not either at home or work. And when was it that this happened? Was it late at night? Or was it early in the morning? Was it some other time of the day? Who were you with when it happened? Were you alone? Were you out with friends or workmates? What else contributed to it? Did this sin show itself after a hard day at work when you were a bit down and a bit tired? Did it show itself when you were out celebrating with friends? Does it show itself when you were sick or unwell? Consider your sin and where it starts and deny it the high ground when possible. As an example, let's go back to my original confession of ice cream. What can I do about eating too much? What can I do about being selfish? Well, the first thing I can do is don't buy any ice cream. If there's no ice cream in the freezer, I'm not going to eat too much. I'm not going to take it off for myself. So if you can abstain from these things when you've considered where your sin came from, do so. Be ruthless. Don't do that anymore. Don't be in that position. But sometimes you can't avoid it. For instance, if it happens where you're at work, well, you can't stop working. You need to still go there. So what do we do then? Well, let's use the example of ice cream again. If there's ice cream in the freezer, what can I do to stop myself from eating too much? Well, there's a couple of things I can do. First one is, don't take the punnet with a spoon and sit down in front of the television. Scoop it out, put it into a bowl, put the punnet back in the freezer, and just eat it from the bowl. And when you've done that, you're not likely to go back and get some more. You finish what's in the bowl, you go, I'm satisfied, I had some ice cream, and you're done. That works. Alternatively, don't eat ice cream alone. If I'm going to have ice cream, do it when my family's awake. Share it with them. It's very hard to eat too much ice cream if I've got to share it with other people. So there's some practical things that we can do to stop the sin that's in our lives. And we need to be watchful for our sins, considerate of how it works, and deny it the opportunity to show itself. But there will always come a time when we are tempted and we fall into sin. What then? Well, what the sinful nature wants us to do is go, oh, well, you've done it now. May as well keep going. All right? Or, oh, you've done it now. How can you possibly go to God now? You've done it again. You failed again. But see, God is not standing behind us with a meter ruler, tapping his foot, waiting to whack you on the knuckles when you do something wrong. That's what the sinful nature wants you to believe. What we should do is if the Spirit has convicted us of a particular sin, deal with it right then. Bring it to God. Admit it to him. Oh, God, I've done it again. Can you believe it? I've done it again. But ask him for help because he promises us that he will find a way out of temptation. Don't cut him out of the picture. Don't deny the Spirit's work here. When you're convicted, bring it straight to God. Don't allow that sin to go unchallenged. Allow what was a once-off to become a habit. What was a habit to become a normal process and to be working out what is the worst in us. Okay, so we looked at who this obligation is for, what the obligation is, and how we deal with sin, what, how we actually fulfill our obligation. But why? Why do it? Well, Paul tells us that too. 
In Romans 8 verse 13 he says, But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And what does that mean, you will live? Well, we already know that we have eternal life through belief in Jesus Christ. So I don't believe that's what Paul's going on about here. Yeah, it's true that those who are in Christ Jesus will do this, and as a result they will live. But I think there's something else being hinted at here from Paul. In order to explain that, I'm going to use two different phrases which you may be familiar with in reference to a party of all things. Now you may have heard the saying, this party is dead. Now when you hear that, this party is dead, what's it mean? Well, the party was not actually alive, so it's not physically killing of the, or the death of the party itself. But what it does mean, though, is it's, there's no excitement. There's no entertainment happening. There's no energy in the party itself. Actually, it's a bit of a downer rather than being something you can celebrate. That's what it means by this party is dead. And alternatively, if I said that somebody was the life of the party, then it's the opposite. What that means is the energy and the excitement and the fun is centred around a particular person and that overflowed to everybody else, the life of the party. It's in this vein I think Paul's getting to here. The life. What is it? It's the energy, it's the vigour, it's the excitement that we have. So just as sin is not truly put to death, but we're told to put do so, so the spirit and life... We're talking about a spirit here that is flourishing, where the sinful nature is diminishing. And so by doing that, by having a flourishing spirit, one that's full of energy, one that's full of power and excitement, then there's an increase in the effects that the spirit brings. The joy of salvation that we have in the spirit, there's an increase if the spirit is allowed to flourish. We are that much more joyful as a result. The comfort that we get from the Spirit in times of pain or trials or persecutions, this is increased if the Spirit is allowed to flourish and the sinful nature diminish. And the peace of God and the relationship that we have with him, it's ever closer if we allow the Spirit to flourish. You know, in times of sin, I don't know if you, if you personally have this, in times of sin I feel distant in my relationship from God. I've broken these commands again. I feel bad. It's difficult to come in prayer. It's difficult to read the word. But if we're diminishing sin and the spirit is allowed to flourish, then that relationship is closer than ever. And the assurance that we have of our salvation is more real than ever if we do this. So this is what I think Jesus was referring to when he said in John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. It's this. It's not just the life to come. It's the life now. The joy, the peace, the comfort that we can have by allowing the spirit to flourish and diminishing the sinful nature. Where are you this morning then? Are you flat in your walk this morning? Do you feel your relationship is perhaps not quite what it should be or could be? Consider your obligation then again this morning. By the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body and you will live. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. 
Father God, we thank you and we praise you that you loved us so much that you gave your only Son, that through belief in him we shall not perish but have eternal life. Father God, we thank you that you sent to us your Spirit that helps us in our sin, that contends against our sin, convicts us of it, and helps us to repent. We pray, Father God, that we would be a people who would fulfill our obligation to the sinful nature, to put it to death, that the Spirit might be allowed to flourish, that we might do so so we might be a greater reflection of Jesus Christ. We do so so that your name might be glorified in all that we do. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.